Amen. All right, if you whoa, have a seat, and uh, if you have a Bible, you need to open up to Joshua chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there is a pile of them on the bottom shelf on that uh, space on the, whatever, south over there. And in that bottom shelf, there's study guides for this sermon series and others. Feel free to take whatever. But we'll need our Bibles. We're in Joshua chapter 4. And uh, chapter 4 begins, obviously, where chapter 3 left off. And where chapter 3 left off was the people, uh, Israel, that Joshua is leading at this point. If you haven't been with us, uh, Moses, in the beginning of Joshua, has died. He has led Israel for uh, many, many years and was, led them out of Egypt, uh, led them to the uh, edge of the promised land, if you will, that had been promised back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Um, and they had been sent, sent spies in from the same city that they are at right before they crossed the Jordan. The spies, the first time came back, said, uh, the people are too big, it's too scary, we can't do this, though God had promised them they could. And they ended up spending 40 years wandering the wilderness as a punishment um, for doing that. Moses eventually dies uh, by basically the command of God, takes him up on a mountain, says, there's the promised land, now you're dead. And Joshua rises up uh, by God's uh, calling, if you will, and confirmation even prior to that to lead into the actual promised land, starting with spies again. And he sends in spies this time, uh, I believe, not to spy out the land and see what the military um, you know, strategy should be, but rather to see that God is already there and forget the military strategy, just follow me, trust me, and everything will be okay. And so we left off where... They, uh, the people watched the Ark of the Covenant, which is a representation of the presence of God uh, within which this golden box carried uh, by law by the Levites. So they're carrying this, this large box in which is two copies of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Aaron's rod, who was the uh, initial high priest, Moses' uh, brother, who has since passed, uh, and a jar of manna to remind them of the provision that God had given them throughout the wilderness experience. And they carry the ark into the Jordan River, and once their feet hit the water, uh, the river divides, and they continue and stop in the middle of the river. So these guys with this ark are standing in the middle of the river uh, with the waters divided at a time during uh, the year when the Jordan is gigantic. It was a, a raging torrent, if you will, probably about a mile wide, and the Israelites were told to follow a half mile behind. So they're on the edge of the bank. The Israelites or the Levitical priests are in the center of the river, and they see it divide, and then they continue uh, to cross uh, in front of the Ark of the Covenant that remains there. And so throughout this entire narrative of this crossing, we see that God is in control the entire time. No matter the time of day, the place, the season, God is always in control uh, he commands, if you will, when the people should get ready. He commands them when to follow and how to follow. He commands them where to cross. And all the things that he commands them to do are pretty much probably counterintuitive to what they would have done. They wouldn't have, they probably would have built a boat. Uh, they probably wouldn't have crossed this time of year. But God has commanded them and is in control and makes it happen. And very quickly we see, and the Israelites themselves see, that their job is not to doubt, is not to, to challenge or to question God's word, but if they want to live, they will simply fall. 
If they want to be prosperous, they will simply follow. doesn't mean they won't have doubts, but they most likely will not give in to those doubts, and they will just follow what God commands. And so when they actually start walking, when they actually step in, obviously the waters divide. It seems foolish to even probably walk across. I mean, they're going to walk for a mile, and they're seeing this heap of water in a pile as they're walking by going, how do we know it's going to stay there? But God's presence in the form of the ark is there, and they walk across. And after they, at the very end of this chapter, you'll see once they get out and the priests walk out, you see the waters are commanded by God, and they go back to exactly the same way, the raging torrent. And we see that God always knows best. He always speaks rightly. He always moves first. And He is always, always, always in control. Now, many of us, I think, as I've been just kind of sitting on this, uh, have had what we would maybe call a Jordan experience, um, maybe several experiences like crossing the Jordan River. And there are those moments where God brings us to a place where it seems hopeless or maybe foolish to walk after Him across what looks like or feels like this raging torrent of a river. And for some of us, I think when we get to that river, the, the pain and, and maybe the or potential pain and the confusion of what to do as we see this river paralyzes us and we do nothing. We just kind of sit there staring, going, what do I do? What do I do? It's too scary. And some of us are so scared, I think, that we run from the Jordan and we go, forget this. We walk back into what amounts to wilderness, a place of confusion where we go in circles and we never actually get anywhere. We know... I think we're at the Jordan, and you know if you're at the Jordan, and I've known if I'm at the Jordan, because this is what happens. You see clearly through His Word in particular. You see clearly where God is leading you and directing you to walk. You know where He is leading you. You can see it. It's clear as day, and you have to decide whether or not you're actually going to follow Him. That's it. You have to decide whether you're actually going to go across that river, knowing not only what that might, the experience of going across the river might be like, but knowing what's on the other side isn't necessarily the result you think. It's going to be a battle. You know that. There's not a guarantee necessarily of how that battle will go, although there's a guarantee of the result, which is God says you'll win. Now, most likely, I believe, those times come when it is most difficult when it is most um, untimely and inconvenient, but it is most glorifying to God, though we may not see that in the moment, sitting on the edge, wondering whether we should walk. But I believe it's those times, if you actually take the step across the Jordan, where God inexplicably shows up and blows the river open, and we walk across on dry land. And it's those moments that I believe in all of our lives become these monumental moments that we could point back to and say, I remember this time. I remember when I saw and I could have ran and I said, you know what, I'm going to follow God where it's most difficult. And where I thought in reflecting on these ideas or these monuments, where I thought that I was going to drown, He made me walk on dry land. Those are the moments. And I think, I hope, Most of of us, if you are a Christian, you've had those. You can point back to those. The question is, for me, for this chapter this week in Joshua 4, how do we intentionally remember 
those moments and those times so that we don't forget what God has done in hopes of helping us the next time we come to a river. Joshua chapter 4 is where we're at. We're going to read it. We'll read every word, and then we'll just blow it open. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people from each tribe of man and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord, the priest, passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, those are the tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan who had families and homes over there who came over uh, with them to fight with them, as we saw in the beginning of Joshua. About 40,000 ready for war because their wives and children stayed home, passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. And so Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests of the feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. And the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, which we'll talk about next week, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. All right, there you go. Chapter 4. Let's break it down. After the nation crosses, okay, so they all go across. It kind of goes back and forth in the narrative, so we'll just kind of approach it a little bit differently. Twelve men, one from each of the tribes, are selected by Joshua. They were actually selected in in Joshua chapter 3. God told them to do that. 
to go into the Jordan and dig out a large stone for each of them. These men have the frightful, wonderful privilege as the waters uh, are sitting in a heap. Everyone's crossed over. They get the joy of now go back in and get the stones. And you've got to be thinking about these guys. Whatever fears they may have, whatever like, okay, you sure it's going to stay there, right? The water's going to stay there. We just got to cross. Because you imagine, they're crossing over in haste, okay? They want to get across this river, but these guys, regardless of the fears they have, they don't delay. And they walk into the river and they start digging out heavy stones, large stones that they each can carry where the, uh, at the feet of where the priests are standing, And they take those stones and they put them on their shoulder and they walk out of the Jordan. And what you don't know is that they're supposed to take them to Gilgal, which is eight miles away. For eight miles. Now, I recently um, ran around the lake of Lake Stevens um, because my wife challenged me to. It was really stupid, but I did it anyway. I I should say I kind of, I ran, right? I ran most of the time, but not all the time. And it's a long ways. I don't think I've ever run eight, whatever, seven and a half miles in my life. Definitely not with a stone on my shoulder. So these guys are carrying a stone for eight miles. We'll get to that. So I like to ask a lot of questions of Scripture of of why God does the way, you know, the things that he does in in particular here. Like, um, why stones from the midst of the Jordan? Why 12 of them? Why eight miles for these guys to carry them? So let's, let's break it down. It says, okay, why, why stones in the river? Well, the first question is, is really what do the stones represent? Why couldn't you just use like a big log and carved it up and put it up there and say, remember this? That's the pillar. But he wants them to have stones from the middle of the river to represent obviously the time when they walked into this raging river after God. And it was that faithful moment where they follow God, not because it looked easy, not because it was convenient, but simply because it was right. That was enough, because God said and they did. And even though for them the things seemed uncertain, even though they didn't feel probably ready, even though it may have appeared like they were going to die, they followed. And when they did, God showed up. When they did, when they fought their emotion, their intellect, and whatever it was, and they followed, God showed up. And for us, I really believe, as I've been sitting, like, what are these stones for me in my life and, and for us? <clears throat> I really believe that these are the stones that we all go through. They're different, different colors, different shades. But they're the trials and the tests in our life that make us, as James says, more steadfast for the next river. That's the intention for them, to make us more steadfast. They're the very stepping stones, if you will, of faith that we walked, even though it was hard and difficult and uncertain and freaky, they are the places where we walked where we probably wouldn't have or shouldn't have apart from the grace of God. And the stones are not only the trial, but they are the symbol of the fact that you walked, that you persevered in the trial. You didn't just sit there and go, let this trial be gone. You actually walked through it. So they have to come from the midst of the Jordan. Why 12? Why not just one big rock? Why not just one rock? A really cool looking rock, right? Who wants to have 12 rocks? And you have to ask yourself, the number 12 occurs five times in the first eight verses. It seems like the writer 
and ultimately God himself, wants to emphasize the unity of these 12 tribes. The, the unity of these 12 tribes in this one experience that they had. They don't want them to forget the crossing was not just to exalt Joshua. It was not just to, to lift up the Levites as they carried the Ark of the Covenant. It was not just for a few men and a few tribes or the nine tribes on the west and the others are just coming along. It was for everyone. This one experience was for everyone. It had to be remembered that they all, all of Israel went through this experience together as a people, as a community, as a family. They went through this together. Hugely important. All I believe that, that God intends for all of us to go through experiences in Jordan crossings together, not alone. It's interesting when, when Paul talks about the church, he talks about sharing sorrows and joys together. He doesn't say, you should do this. He says, this is what you do. When you hurt, I hurt. When you rejoice, I rejoice because we are one. We are a family. We are a community. That's not the way it ought to be. That's the way it is. I'm so blown away by how many times I find out about difficult things going on later. Like, yeah, we didn't want to bother you. We didn't want to post a prayer request. I'm like, are you serious? We have a desire to share in the sufferings and a desire to share in the joys. It is what we are supposed to be. And I believe that he intends for the Jordan crossings to be these things that bind us together like nothing else. You ever seen those survivor shows? These guys together for 30 days. I filled out the application twice, never sent it in. But they're together 30 days, right? And after that, they're like best friends. Like, are you serious? Will you sit and you starve and you suffer and you beat up people for a million bucks on an island somewhere where bugs are all over you and you're just hurting? You get bound together. The people that planted the church, this church, we are bound together, the very initial people, and then it grows from there because you start doing things. You're like, this is psycho, not so crazy, woohoo, fun, yeah, I hate it, it's wonderful, terrible. And it binds you together. It's supposed to. You're not supposed to go through Jordan crossings alone. And I think that, without question, this happens even with husbands and wives. You're brought together as one flesh and marriages suffer together and go through Jordan crossings together. And families and churches and groups of friends. You see Paul doing this with Barnabas and Silas. You, have a, you never see very many things happening alone. I'd argue that nothing really incredibly wonderful, powerful and shaping happens independently from one person. It always happens in groups. God is not only faithful to me, but he's faithful to us. There's an us to it. And then why carry them eight miles, which I think is kind of strange. You have, I mean, this is a really honest question. Why not just put it on the edge of the Jordan? I mean, this guy's got to be thinking that. All right, we've got the stones. Where do you want it? Well, we want it over on Gilgal. Are you serious? Why can't we just put... This is a perfectly good piece of land. Put it right here. Make an, we'll make it look really pretty. We'll put some palm branches on it. You know, whatever. Why can't we just put it right here? He says, no, walk eight miles. Why? Why would he want to like eight miles? And so I was like, hey, why would he want to do this? Well, monuments and memorials and things to remember God's faithfulness are not just for where you've been, it's for where you're going. And they need it in a place that it can be seen for the future. Not just to remember the past. Not just to dwell in the past. 
It's supposed to project you and push you into the future. So it has to be at Gilgal. And Gilgal becomes the place of central operations for Joshua as he, throughout his conquest. They always go back to Gilgal. So think about the armies coming back, right? They go back, and what do they see? A memorial there. Like, yeah, that's right. We got the Jordan busting open God coming on. Jericho, bring it. I mean, they're just excited, right? They see it, it's there, it pushes the future generations. But also, and I was just, this might be a stretch, but I'm going to go with it anyway. I think that for us, when we build our monuments, we need a little bit of distance between the event and the actual monument building before we fully understand what we're supposed to memorialize. And think about these guys carrying that stone for eight miles. I guarantee you they remember it probably a lot more than anyone else of that event, that time. It made an impression on them. They're carrying the weight of it going... Why am I carrying this stinking stone for eight miles? Then they know when they get down and get to Gilgal, they're going to put it down. They're going to remember it maybe more than others. But all of us, I think, sometimes need to get a little bit of distance so that we can carry the stone for a while, feel the weight of it, consider the size of it, meditate on what it means, and then memorialize it. And sometimes maybe we're too quick to make memorials because we don't fully understand what's going on so he builds the monument okay once they have the stones they build the monument and uh they actually travel to gilgal i'm going to bounce around the narrative a little bit but they go and they they take it to gilgal and you ask yourself okay what's the purpose of the monument what does scripture say they're, they're doing this for so verse six says that the stones are going to be a sign and verse seven says that the stones are going to be a memorial Seems to be two different things here going on. In verse 20 to 24, describe when they actually set the memorial up. So we'll read that again. It says, verse 20, And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, notice the quotes, okay? Quote, When your children ask, this is Joshua speaking, their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. Okay? So, <clears throat> that's what he says in the, in the little quotes. This is what he says you're going to tell your children. And then he continues on. This isn't what he's telling the children. This is what he's telling the people who are going to tell their children. If that makes sense. Verse 23, For the Lord your God, this is why you're going to do this, dried up the waters of the Jordan for, for you until it passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So he's making a comparison, a connection with the Red Sea experience. So that, so that, monument, so that, you will teach, so that, all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So, monuments and, in, and memorials, if you will, are very essential to our life. The memories of where God has taken at least them as a people gave them a history and also gave them a hope of where they were going. Now, they already had several signs of which God had given them, feasts and festivals and the Ark of the Covenant, different things to remind them, but this was a little bit different. And those ceremonies, as this does as well, but those ceremonies reminded them who God was and what God had done and this did in a, in a new and a particular way. The monument wasn't just some sentimental pile of rocks. It was um, 
going to be used as a tool for the future. Supposed to be used to do something. And what it says that Joshua said in future times, children, just the future generations, children are going to ask about the monuments when they see them. So they're going to see them. They're supposed to be there. And they will see them and ask the questions. You won't be having to go, well, let me tell you about this monument that doesn't exist. They will see the monuments. And the implication is, okay, parents, that you would teach them, that you would talk about them, that you would retell the stories of what God did. And the memorial, the monument, this is the memorial remembering of God's faithfulness, of God's power, of God's promises. Now, the implication is that the children would ask because the monuments were there to be seen visibly. And that the family was prepared to teach their children about the memorial, what it meant. A Jewish dad was not supposed to send his questioning kid to the local rabbi to get the answer. He was supposed to have the answer. And you think about this. What happens when fathers in particular, but I'll just say families, don't take responsibility to communicate the faithfulness of God to the next generation? We are only one generation away. You are only one generation away from the book of Judges. If you read the book of Judges, it is crazy. It is dark. It is screwed up. And that is one generation away from a faithful generation, supposedly. But it only takes one generation for things to go cuckoo. Paul, when he's telling Timothy to entrust a faithful man, he says, entrust a faithful man you can teach, who will also teach. He's worried about four generations. Paul, Timothy, men he'll teach, and who they will teach. We barely figure out our own. But if we don't consider about teaching the faithfulness of God for the monuments of God's power, of what He's done for the next generation, it could get very bad very quickly. So he says, teach them, though. Verse 24 says, you will teach them, and who will, they will teach their children, and then their children, and their children, so that all the peoples of the world will know about God and His power. About God's might, that He is mighty. So it's not just for your children, but it's for the world. It's a witness to the world, not the monuments, the teaching. The memorials that you are teaching about. The actual teaching says this is so that. You're teaching your children so that. Because your children are the ones who will go forth with the same teaching. The monument may actually be gone at some point. But can they still teach it? And their teaching would be a witness to know that God is powerful. And then he says, but for us, it will teach us, for us, to fear God. Isn't that kind of backwards, you think about? Aren't like the world the ones supposed to be doing all the fearing? And we're the ones supposed to stand in, in you know, awe of God and who He is? Yes. And yes. What I believe we have to remember is that God, the communicating of the memorials about God, about the 
faithfulness of God, about the promises of God, about the power of God, are intended to create fear in us. What kind of fear? Complete awe of God. Because if you don't fear God first, primarily, above all things, you will fear something else and be overwhelmed at the next Jordan. You have to fear God first. And the monuments are that to remember who God is, but also a sign to tell us what He is still doing. Yes, who He is, what He has done, but what He's still doing. So that when we sit there and come to a raging torrent again, we're not hopeless and despairing. We're like, we got the Jordan blown up wide open, God, and I'm encouraged. He has been faithful then, He'll be faithful now. So I've been sitting on this idea of like how to build monuments. How do you do that today? I mean, I'm not going to build a pile of, like, pile of stones in the center of my lawn. And so I was like, what is that? Well, back thousands of years ago, the Jordan River was blown up, and that's why I'm a faithful Christian today. I mean, that's a sign. It seems kind of silly. Okay, so how do, the, how do we build monuments to God? How do you, I mean, seriously, how do you build monuments and memorials to God, not for the faithfulness of what He did in the Jordan, but for the faithfulness of what He's done in your life or maybe the generation even before you? Those moments, those times when you crossed the Jordan, when you saw where God was going, it looked crazy and nuts, but you followed Him and He proved faithful and you walked across dry land. Have you memorialized that? Do we memorialize that? I actually believe that we have to have actual, practical, real monuments today. Not idols to worship, but memorials, things, continuing stories for today to give us direction as we walk, to remind us of God's faithfulness, especially in the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion, when you're scared, when you don't have the money to pay for something, when you're fearful of, of death, when you're fearful of something terrible happening, losing your job, when you're confused about where you're at, you need things to, to center you, to give you purpose, to give you meaning. And we have all kinds of stories. We tell all these stories all the time. You get together with your families, you tell stories about what you know, funny Uncle Bob did, and you're, like, you, you're laughing, you've got stories that give you a family identity. But do you have stories of faithfulness that you share? Where God said, man, this was, this was a hard time, but God brought me through. When your children come to you and, and, and friends come to you and say, man, I'm really struggling, you say, let me tell you a story where God, I was in the same place and God took me through that. Or do they only come up when you need them? Have you actually memorialized them? Have you put them in a place? I mean, we collect trinkets. I mean, everyone has little collections of stuff in their house, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about putting, like, Thomas Kincaid pictures on your wall and, you know, buying a precious moment for every event in your life and be like, yes, this is when God gave me, you know, our child. But that is a, a moment of faithfulness, Right? When I was growing up, my parents uh, at their church, still, I think it's still there today, there was a tree planted when I was born. It was my tree. Because God was faithful. He gave, us, he gave him a son. For me, I'm not trying to remember the, the, the best of times. Sometimes it's the worst of times. But it's those times when, when the presence of God showed up so powerfully that you, inexplicably, you couldn't explain it any other way. Have you memorialized that? And so, in my home, here's what we've done. And we haven't been, I, I was thinking about this, we have, we have this box right here. 
Um, it, we call, I made one one time because I was inspired, not by this passage, by something else. But I made one. I call it the God Box. And um, if you open this God Box, there's stories. Now I'm a writer. I like to write the way I communicate stories. Um, and so there's stories of faithfulness in there. And actually, um, there's, there's several things in there that are written. Uh, one thing is, I think, it's in here. Let's see. Um, this right here. This is the uh, first core meeting for our church, Saturday, July 1st. Uh, I wrote notes and names of all the people who were there. There were 14 to 16 people there. And I wrote what I felt. And today there's more than 14 people. I mean, that's, that's a picture of beauty. That's God's faithfulness. That's why I, I pull it out and read it and be like, man, I don't know if you want me to do this. When I don't even know if we're like really going to do it. And God was faithful. There's stories of in here um, of our first son, Fisher. We, uh, we had a hard time getting pregnant. It took us five years, three years. I'm going to get it confused, but my wife will have to forgive me. Um, but we, uh, we had a, a difficult time getting pregnant with our first son. And um, we, uh, there's a huge narrative written. And uh, we planned one day to show it to our son, and we just did, uh, geez, a couple months ago. We let him read it. And, we, and it wrote... It was written uh, nine years ago, and we wrote, Someday you'll be able to read this. And it's an amazing story of God's faithfulness. Those are the morals I'm talking about. Do you have those, those, those monuments? Have you intentionally said, you know, we need to remember something for the future generations to treat, teach our children about how God has been faithful, how God has been powerful in our lives? Do we even look at life like that and start going, where has God, God actively poured out grace? And I know it has happened, but we ignore it. And God says, don't. Where is the record of God's faithfulness for your home, for your life, that's not just in your brain? So in order to build in a memorial, obviously you need some materials. And if, if we connect it with the story here, some people are going to have to go back into the river for the stones. Because they're there. might be a little scary to step into that, to start digging them out again, but you have to dig them out. And I believe that God wants and intends to redeem those stories. They may not be the most wonderful, like, you know, awesome stories about you, about some experience. They may be very dark stories, but they're stories that need to be communicated. You may have a story of uh, an abortion in your life that may be needed to be redeemed at some point for the glory of God and for the goodness to hear and communicate to others, your children begin with, but others as well. You may, um, there's a guy in our church that has had a, um, at the men's retreat, he shared some darkness in his life. And he, he built this incredibly amazing monument knowing where he was at and where he had been. It went from adulterous affairs to going in a nut house, pretty much, to standing before men proclaiming his love for Jesus and how God had redeemed his marriage. That's a monument, and he has it written down now, and he proclaimed it and taught and said, pointed to it. Some people have to go and dig those stones out. Some, I believe, um, have a pile of stones. They've got a bunch of things. They go, oh, God was faithful here, God was faithful here. I remember we had no food, and God brought us a check and all these things. But some of you need to memorialize them and position them in a place and a location that actually you can teach about them. I don't know what that looks like for you. It looks different for everyone. 
But I wonder if you think about that, if you go into your home, if anyone spent any amount of time with you, whether it be months, years, whatever, is there a speaking of memorials? Is there a discussion of where God has been faithful? Do you ever go there? Where do your children learn about God's faithfulness in the past to you? Where do they learn that? And for some of us, I think maybe you're sitting and going, I don't have any stones to build with. I don't know where God has ever been faithful to me. I don't know if I have any rocks that I've ever dug out from the bottom of the river. I don't know if there are any there if I, if I were to start digging. And my question for you is perhaps you've never actually followed God across the river at all. Maybe you don't have any times we've ever actually taken steps of faith. We've actually had to depend actively on God that you could share. And maybe it's time to start following God across those rivers and following God to a place where you are completely 100% dependent on Him no matter what, and He has to work it out, and you're simply going to follow and be faithful because you know He is. Some of us need to just get across and start taking some steps to start building or getting materials, I should say, for our monuments. All right. Meanwhile, back in the river, okay, there's a second memorial here. Second memorial. And as the men are hulking their stones out of the riverbank, Joshua is constructing a second memorial. It's in verse 9. And verse 9 says, Joshua, so these men taking their stones... Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. So he builds a monument in the center of the river. Twelve stones, similar, I imagine, to the one that will appear at Gilgal. So the children would all see the stones at Gilgal at some point, and then they would ask their, their fathers about them, like, what are these stones about? And the fathers, if they were obedient, okay, not if they were perfectly equipped, felt really good as a teacher, if they were obedient, they would explain the miracle of crossing the river and perhaps how uh, God used that miracle and that monument to give them other victories and conquests in the promised land. And then they would add something. They would say, but you know, Johnny... I doubt the Jewish name was Johnny, but it might have been, okay? You know, Issachar. Okay, there's another monument. There's another monument, and it's in the middle of the river where the priest stood with the ark. And you can't see it all the time, but it's there. It's in a place that no one could ever touch it. No enemy could destroy it. It's there. It's in the river in a place where only a miracle of God could have placed it. Now, God doesn't appear to be commanding Joshua to do this. I mean, he just kind of seems like he does it on his own, uh, some kind of maybe personal monument to God's faithfulness for everyone to remember. But in doing this, we see that I think Joshua has moved past in his life into just this, away from just a willful obedience, if you follow me. A lot of us go, I'm going to build monuments because God told me to. I'm supposed to build monuments. You have this dutiful obedience, which isn't wrong necessarily. But I think as you 
uh, grow in your relationship with God, you move from a place of, of just willful, I'm going to do what God tells me to do because he's God, to a desire somewhat to do it because you have this relationship, but then to a place where you want nothing more than to honor God. That is your heart's delight. You have nothing more to just declare his glories and his beauty and his power. It, is, it, is, it bleeds out of you. And so his gesture is beyond duty to build something because God even told him to. It's in a place where he builds from a heart just desiring to worship. And God lets him build it. He doesn't say anything. He lets him build it. And the monument itself, you think about it, is a bit strange because it's buried under the water much of the year. So you're not going to see it very often. And you know that because in verse 18 it says, When the priest came out, the waters of the Jordan returned exactly where they were, overflowing. It didn't always overflow. It did during harvest, but it returned exactly where it was. And so you have this, most likely it wasn't even a pile of stones like that. Most likely it was a circle of stones. So you may never have seen it. But for Israel, it reminded them that the Jordan River had opened and it had closed. And in their crossing, they could never go back to the way things were. They were on the other side now, out of the wilderness, into and onto the battlefield. And every now and then, maybe, if it was a pile, which I don't think it was, but in case it was, when the river was its driest, maybe even totally dry because of some famine or something, but whenever it was driest, they would maybe see a peak of the monument in the middle of the river and they would remember but that transformational moment. And I believe that, yes, we all need uh, uh, some sort of God box, whatever that looks like for you. Some intentional way, and that's the key word, to build monuments where God has led us to and where God has walked us to and through and where He has blessed us. But the reality is we all have our own God box, if you will. We have our own memorial buried and it's in you. It's, it's, quite frankly, if you're a Christian, it's your testimony. It's the story, your story of transformation that everyone has. And it may not be, you know, some incredibly colorful horror story like I was involved in drugs and, and sex and all these amazing, terribly, wonderfully horrible things. And God redeemed me out of that. It may be something as simple as, you know what? God uh, let me passively go into my legalism for years and never saved me. And finally, He redeemed me. We all have a story. Some testimony of God that's a memorial. A pile of rocks, if you will. And it's the moment when Jesus said, Followed me and you stepped and you were buried in the river with Jesus, and your sin was buried with Him, and you walked out a new person. It's that story in that moment. And it's a memorial that no one can ever touch. It's not like that could burn in a fire. No one can touch your testimony. But the question is, have you memorialized your testimony? When is the last time you told your children When's the last time you told a friend? When's the last time you told a stranger about the miracle God did in your heart? Your testimony. The beautiful monument to God of how He saved you. And if you have believed in Christ and accepted the good news of redemption, 
then He has paid the price. You are a walking monument to be shared, meant to be shared, a story that was meant to be told. You're a memorial. And I remember we had one sermon where we had a mic open. It was just stories of redemption. We had people come up and just talk about their stories. And it was amazing. Because the funny thing is, we all look really pretty on Sunday. And then you're like, well, let me tell you about the ugliness of where God had me, and where he took me through, and where he brought me to. And some of the stories of us right here would blow you away. And you wouldn't be blown away like, I can't believe that, man, you got out of that. It's like, I can't believe God was so incredibly faithful. The power of God to take someone into the darkness they were in and pull them out. Whoa. So as a church, God has told us, Jesus, I should say, left us with two memorials to practice. He said, here are two monuments. One was baptism, one was communion. And whenever we gather together, we teach about communion for the same reason we share our testimony and the same reason this monuments were built to share and let the world know of the power of God to redeem a single soul. Power of God to change a heart. I mean, amazing. And for us to fear God. It points this communion, this little piece of bread and this wine, points to an actual event in history. A real thing. Just as this monument is. not just idea of, well, God's really a gracious God. No, an event centered on a real man named Jesus who really died on a cross, was really killed, was really murdered for you and for me. And He really, for reals, Rose from the dead. After three days, He really rose. It's a monument to all these things. It's not just a a fun thing to do as a church. We are memorializing every time we take this. He really died on a cross. He really died on a hill outside of Jerusalem. He really lived a sinless life. And He really took my place because I disobeyed God and I could not get myself back to Him. And so I trust in what Jesus did. He really rose. He really has the power to forgive your sins. He really has the power to give you eternal life beyond this world and even now. And through Him, we have a new life. And this one little exercise is the monument. Know why you do it. Know why you do it. Teach it to your children. Because in doing that, you are teaching them the gospel. And tell them how the gospel is actually real. And if it's not real in your life, you're like, I don't have a testimony. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe today you need to confess that He is your Savior. That you do not deserve to go to heaven because you are broken, rebellious. Everyone else has admitted that who is a Christian. They say, I do not have my bleep together. Period. And I need Jesus. Teach your children why you do it. It's a real event, historical event, that is not only to remind us of what happened, but it's supposed to push us forward to show us what is most important in this world. Have monuments in your life 
whatever they look like. I don't know what that will look like for your family, but I have to ask a question for all of us. Where is the record of faithfulness that you point to to teach your children, to teach your spouse, to teach your friend, to say, there's God is faithful? Yes, you can point here. There's plenty of things to point here. God is faithful. But where are the news stories that you're telling? They're there. You have one right in here. I think there are others. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for the monuments that You have built in Scripture where You have shown us the faithfulness of God to bring us through incredible, terrible, wonderful experiences where we have to depend on You. I pray You will help us follow You. You will help us to take steps of faith that we can memorialize and remember to give us strength and encouragement to let the world know how powerful You are but also to direct us and to push us forward so that we fear You above all else. Lord, teach us how to build those monuments. Whether the writing stories, creating pictures, help us just to be intentional about remembering Your faithfulness to us. And as we take communion today, Father, I pray that You will remind us of what actually happened, of what we truly believe occurred on a cross through a man named Jesus and move us to confess that as we share our testimony with others about your faithfulness regardless of how it makes us feel. In the blood of your Son we pray. Amen. Out of Philippians uh, chapter 1 to remind us of the signs and different things that we have to proclaim the faithfulness of God our very life. It says, Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of our salvation and that from God. Father, just help us to live in a way that's a monument and a memorial and a sign to your faithfulness in our life. Let it be a declaration and a proclamation, Father, to the world that you are mighty and powerful, and to us that we have nothing to fear but you alone. Let us go in grace in the name of your Son. Amen. Go in grace.